This guru lives in our family now. It's a, it's, he's a presence, like he's a presence in your family and in your family. And for all of you who are here, who have had this experience this weekend, these days that we've been together, your family will be impacted by your presence and by your experience here and by how Nimkaroli Baba or some other being lives within you. Your family will be changed by that. Hey everyone, it's Raghu back with Mind Rolling and I wanted to introduce this next episode. Uh, it's very special to me. Um, you may recall that I, I do uh, put out episodes that take place live in one of our retreats, either these days in Boone, North Carolina or Maui. And uh, this was from the Boone retreat and we uh, had the pleasure of of hanging with Krishna us, who we've, of course, known each other until over 50 years now, being together with Maharaji back in the day, Neem Karoli Baba, and Lama Tsultramaliona, a great, great uh, Tibetan teacher uh, from the West who's been our friend for a very long time. And particularly, uh, she had written this fantastic book. If you haven't seen it, and it'll be in the show notes and all of that, Feeding Your Demons, Feeding the Demons, maybe, um, really about how to uh, just get friendly with the horrific dark thoughts and emotions that we all seem to deal with on a day-to-day basis. So really quite wonderful. But so I did, I always do, as I said, that mind-rolling podcast at one of these retreats. And uh, what I thought of, uh, I had nothing planned. I just said, hey, will you join me to both of them, Krishnas and Lama? And they said, sure. And they had no idea about anything. And I just, what it was for me was, I was just realizing how well we are being taken care of on a day-to-day basis by that guru which lies within god guru self ramana maharshi said are one and how well we are being taken care of and i i uh, began the conversation and told this story about how maharaji saved my family through my father who i'd had a very difficult relationship with and he came to see my brother and i in india and the long and the short of it is that he he um, got me to give my father some acid, which completely transformed our entire family for the rest of our lives. So how we were taken care of. And then Krishnadas tells a wonderful, marvelous story uh, of his uh, similar thing that happened with his mother coming to visit him in India. It's a great story. And Lama also uh, weighs in uh, very, very wisely. And there's a bit of a Q&A at the end. It's a wonderful episode. I think everybody will enjoy and get a lot of great information out of it as well. And hopefully in the end, know we are being taken care of for sure. So uh, 
I look forward to seeing you next week again. And here we go. Mind rolling on the Be Here Now Network. Welcome. Let's take some nice big deep breaths together. And you've met all of these people, but let me introduce you again to the lovely Raghu Marcus, um, Lama Soltrum, and then of course, Krishna Das. Thank you all so much. Of course. Is that my name, my first name? <laughs> of course, yes. Of course it is. Yes. Anila. Hi, everyone. So, I, I did have some ideas before uh, thinking about what we, would, what we would talk about. That's unfortunate. <laughs> I dismissed them all, though. They're all gone. A new thought came. And it came out of, uh, well, everything that's been going on here and how we've grown over these last few days together. And also, just in hanging out with people, having meals, hearing stories, and so on. And I just wanted to talk about how, or us to talk about how we are all so thoroughly taken care of by the guru. And it's not the physical guru at all, necessarily. Yes, it can be. It happened to three of us sitting here. Lama Tsultram will have some great stories. The beings that she has met and taking teachings from is incredible. So, but it's, it's exemplified by the fact that I sat, the first night I came here, I sat down with uh, several people, two of whom, told me stories of their experiences with Maharaji that were completely, utterly no different than when any of us were with him, when he still was in the body and since. And I was just struck by, by the, the extraordinary way in which we are really being taken care of. And I wanted to share one story of mine that exemplifies that. Actually, it was prompted by David Nickturn because we just started talking and that story came up and he said, geez, that's something you should share. So I am in India with Maharaji. I'm with my brother. And we keep sending my father, you know, letters saying, this is incredible. We've met somebody. We, Ramdas is guru. We can't imagine what we're going through. It's just extraordinary. The caveat is that my father terrorized me when I was a child. He, he had tremendous PTSD. He was a World War II fighter, a uh, bomber pilot. He and one other man survived that war and he was really disconnected with himself would be the a wild understatement krishnadas of course knows my father quite well knew him well so he can vouch so i was pretty traumatized by him but i knew that he loved me that wasn't uh, an issue 
we did have that beneath all of the terrorizing. And so we get a letter back one day saying, I'm going to come to India. I want to see what you guys are doing. I'm thinking to myself, holy shit, he's really going to come here. I'd... <laughs> and sure enough, there he is. And my brother and I uh, meet up with him. And we knew that Maharaji was in this town called Brindavan. It's near the Taj Mahal, not far from Delhi. So we took him down there alongside of uh, Parvati, who turned out to be, we got together and turned out to be the mother of my children. And just the three of us went down there. And nobody, none of the other Westerners were there for some reason. And we came in through the temple, and my father had lace, we had just chapels, just sandals, threw them off, ran inside. Maharaji said, your father's here. It's a big wall. You can't see anything. I, there's no phones, nothing. And my father's still trying to take his shoes off. Anyhow, finally he got in, and Maharaji gave him the whole business about knowing my father. Oh, you got on a plane? It's landed in Frankfurt? You, in Germany, I think he said, uh, it, you, you sat next to an Indian businessman and chatted. And my father was, of course, completely like somebody punched him in the face. Uh, he could not, this was just not anywhere near his day-to-day -day experience, to say the very least. So the conversation went on like that. He was teasing me, you only love your father because he gives you money, stuff like that. And I go, oh, God, no, right in front of him. Um, and then at one point he turned to me and said, did you give him the medicine? And I said, yep, I did. He had a cold on his way over. I gave him some aspirin. And Maharaji went, nay, yogi medicine Ramdas gave me? And I went, acid? <laughs> and my father said, LSD? He was like with this look on his face and Maharaji said to me, take care of your father while he's in India and meet me in 10 days in, a, in another city with another devotee, Dada, in Allahabad. So, okay, we'll take care. I had, I, not that I had any acid on me at all. Not like Ramdas who carried around everywhere he went. That's how Maharaji got it. So... We went to Benares, which is the place where bodies are burned thousands of years, 24-7. My father thought he wasn't afraid to die. That's how disconnected he was. So we went there, and I'm walking on the street, and some satsang person named Uma is walking towards me. I said, do you have to happen to have any acid? And she had one dose left. And she gave it to me, and we were living on, a, on the houseboats, you know, down on the Ganga, not far from the Burning Gods. A houseboat? You mean the Rat Hotel? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, you brush your teeth, and the feces are floating. But I mean, my father was just absolutely shock, in shock, really, the whole time. And uh, so, but I gave it to him, and he took it. I could, can you, I mean, imagine a 50-odd-year-old advertising uh, person, right? He had an advertising business. So, 
there we were sitting around him waiting for something to happen. What's going to happen to him? And he was reading a book and just kind of hanging out. And then we decided, well, we should take him for a walk. So we started walking through the back alleys of Benares. Dead donkey right there. And then a dead person they were throwing money at so they could get enough wood to burn the body properly. He had a whole death trip, obviously, if this is what he needed. We got back to uh, Maharaji in Allahabad. He never said a word about how's your trip or anything. Of course, nothing rational went on like that at any time. He did say, you know, the Ganges water is really pure, isn't it? That was it. And then he told my father a whole series of incidents because my father had a horse farm in Quebec and he had saved the life of a horse who was supposed to be euthanized by going out every two hours and putting clay on the horse's leg. The, he told him the color of the horse and the whole story, and that my father literally just fell down. And you're crying. And that was the beginning of what turned out to be a relationship that tied back our, tied our family back together, me and him in particular. But then he went back after uh, he left. He was only in India for two weeks, and then he went back to Canada. And a number of months later, after some of us had come back from India, a number of months later, he went back for a couple of months with my sister, my sister's eventual husband, and his girlfriend, and when he came back, our whole lives completely changed in terms of the family and the way that we had been so separated and far apart and angry and so on. I mean, it didn't all just go away like that, but it, it was the beginning of uh, the extraordinary rest of his life, my life, uh, and, and our family. So we were taken care of, and we knew that Maharaji, we were told by Indian people um, that he would live with them and he would take care of every aspect of the family life. He was a family guru, and that he lived with families all the time and took care of them. So it was a, just a fantastic example of being thoroughly taken care of and... Uh, I was reminded of this when I sat down when I first got here a few days ago and these two stories that I was told. These people were completely taken care of. It, it was extraordinary. Um, and I was thinking, uh, just mentioned to Krishnadas before, because his mom came, and that's a, a great story if you would tell as well. <clears throat> ah. Yeah. So I was uh, in the temple with Maharaji, living there. And um, one day I'm sitting with Maharaji and he says to me, is your mother coming to India? My mother? Yeah. <laughs> so later that day I get a message from our friends at the hotel in town that uh, my mother called and she wants to talk to me. So the next day, <clears throat> I went to Nanital and I booked a call. You know, it took like 12 hours to get through. 
And my mother, I get, get my mother on the and said, hi, Ma. She goes, I want to come to India. <laughs> so I said something to her that if my daughter said it to me, I'd lock her in a, in a closet and throw rice in once a week. <laughs> I said, I have to ask my guru. <laughs> <laughs> so literally, then I went back to, back to the temple. <clears throat> I said, my mother wants to come to India. Tell her to come. Oh. <clears throat> okay. So uh, I went to meet her uh, in Delhi, picked her up at the airport, and we stayed at the Imperial Hotel. And then uh, I've been in India for two years, and I thought, okay, what's the best way to get back up to Nanital in the mountains? The deluxe bus. The difference between the deluxe bus and the regular bus was there actually a cushion on the seat. <laughs> Instead of just wood, yeah. So we bought, you know, she had money, so we bought tickets on the deluxe bus. Unfortunately, it stopped in Moradabad, which is the toilet of the, of the world. <laughs> and she had to go to the bathroom, so I said, oh, just right there, it says, ladies, go ahead. So she walks in and she comes out in about 10 seconds, white as a sheet. There was like a foot of water with creepy crawlies and everything in the, you know, the whole bathroom was like, so she said, Jeffrey, I will never forgive you for this. <laughs> <laughs> I was in heaven. There was a doily on the back of the seat. You know, I didn't remember, it, just the fact that it was black with oil didn't mean anything to me. It was really a thing to put your head. <laughs> so anyway, it was really something. So we get to Nanantel, and the next day we go to Kenshi. My mother comes in, and I had told her to bring the best sweater she could find, the best cashmere sweater she could find. She brought this beautiful maroon uh, turtleneck sweater, and you can see it on all the pictures. It's a, the blue blanket pictures. You can see the red sweater. Immediately took off everything and put it on, and he starts abusing the Indian devotees. You miserable people, you don't bring me anything. Look at this woman came all the way from America and brought me a sweater and he put it on, you know. And then, uh, so basically, my mother was in India for, I guess, two weeks. The whole time, this is what she looked like. <laughs> I would lead her around by her hand, you know. She, <laughs> But everybody was so sweet to her, she couldn't actually fight it off. She had to let it in. Maharaja says to her, will you give him money? And she says, I want him to work. He said, don't worry, he'll work. <laughs> and then, you know, he said something to her that she misunderstood, I think. He said, he's my son, not your son. <laughs> no. In India, that's, that's the way you express, you know, love and the caring. He, didn't, he wasn't taking me away from her, but he was just including me in his family. But she got a little upset. And later I found out one of the reasons she came to India, aside from thinking she was going to bring me back to America, which wasn't going to happen, <laughs> was to, she had seen a picture of Maharaji, and she had the feeling that Maharaji's nose was the same as her father's nose. <laughs> 
You're related, Nate. Yeah, yeah. So that's what brought you to India. <laughs> you see if Maharaji's nose is the same as my grandfather's. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so anyhow, so basically the whole time she just sat there in a daze, and it was just very nice, though. So on the last day of, that we were going to be in the hills, uh, the other thing is when we were leaving, Maharaji hands her this, this uh, mala of flowers because she was going from India to, in, to Israel and she was, she was going to go to Jerusalem. So he said, put this on Jesus' tomb for me. And so this little old Jewish lady is looking at him and like, what? <laughs> anyway, she said she couldn't find Jesus' tomb, something like that. <laughs> but here's the thing. So we walk out of the temple and we go across the bridge. And then we walk up the steps to the road because the temple's kind of below the road level. And the car is waiting for us and we walk over to the car. I open the door of the car for her and she turns and looks down into the temple. And Maharaj is sitting on his tucket alone and just sitting there alone. And she looks down and she bursts out crying like a baby. I actually had to catch her. She was going to fall over. She's weeping uncontrollably. Hmm. I helped her into the car and she just, she went all the way down to the plains. It was unbelievable. And, um, uh, That was the moment that, that the hook went in, you know, and she was an alcoholic, and at that point she was still drinking a lot. But finally she got into rehab and spent the last 20 plus years clean. But the funny thing is, her daily life wasn't, didn't change that much. But whenever, People would come, uh, some people from Long Island would be coming in to sing with me in the city. They'd stop and pick her up and bring her in. And they would ask her, you met Maharaj? And then she would just like start talking and just open up like this. Then close down again. It was just so interesting. But it was amazing. And... Uh, you could see how, and you know, the funny thing is my father, who was really open and intellectually aware and good person and all this stuff, he never made it to India. But my mother, mm -hmm. she had darshan. Mm -hmm. And that seed was planted in her. And uh, he actually named her Yashoda, who was Krishna's mother. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it was quite extraordinary. You got to tell the airport. Oh, yeah, that's right. Story. So as we were leaving Kenshi, Maharaji said to me, he, you know, he had made me the pujari of the Devi, the goddess, the Durga temple. He said, when you're in the airport, you have, to, you have to get down on your knees and do puja to your mother. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. He knew how to get you, you know. <laughs> 
So yeah, there's a picture of me. Somebody, she gave her camera to this guy in the airport, and he took a picture of me on my knees. I had the arty lamp, <laughs> waving the lights in front of my. But the thing is, if you see that picture, and you see the look on my mother's face as she's looking at me at that moment, you will see the goddess. It's the most beautiful thing mm. I've ever seen. Mm. That was one moment in a long life, but it's a moment. Beautiful. So I think I, I mentioned one thing earlier a few days ago, but I'll say it again. Um, and this is in reference to the 16th Karmapa and Maharaji. And I had gone to have his darshan at, in Los Angeles not long before he died, a year or two. And it, he was doing what's called a black hat ceremony, which Lama can fully explain what that really is. But at the end, they allow everybody to come up and put a silk scarf on it. He puts the scarf on you. It's a blessing. And there's a line. And I got about... I don't know, 15 feet from him in that line. And then I was just suffused with this, the only descript, ineffable feeling, and the only description is I was, it was Maharaji. It was the same thing when I was, I would be sitting in front of Maharaji, that same spaciousness and uh, bliss and complete feeling of contentment. And so we've been doing these the retreats, starting with Ramdas, you know, 2005, six, and every one of them. Now, he had many friends, like Sultram, Buddhist friends, and we would invite them, and they were definitively a part of our, of our path, really. And uh, the reality that I found when I had that darshan of the 16th that there, we're, we're not talking about bodies, obviously, and it's beyond that. But in this case, I really want to hear some your first meeting with 16th and what happened, because it's so profound. Mm. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell that. Move closer. Um, yeah. Before I tell that story, so uh, you can hear me, right? Yeah, it's loud. Okay. It's turned out. Turn up your hearing aid. <laughs> okay. Um, now it's really loud. Um, there's a lot of the myth of Maharaji here and how he actually lived in the lives of some of the people that are here and how he's living in some of you and your experience or your dreams or visions that you've had. So I just wanted to say to people who haven't had this experience, and have come here and heard so much about it, the guru, 
And there could be a feeling of, I missed the boat. Mm. I wasn't... I wasn't born at the right time. I missed the boat for these amazing teachers. And, you know, whatever I'll, I'll get now is going to be some sort of something that isn't as good as what that was. And I just want to say to you that the guru is, is a physical embodiment of awakeness, of full awakeness. And there's different levels of gurus also, of different levels of awakeness. But that awakeness is within you already. And when I spoke two days ago about the awareness that's already present in you, that is there effortlessly, at this very moment, that's the guru. We have these external beings that appear in our lives and we seek them out and we receive teachings that awaken that or they point that out. You have it. You know. Or you need to do 100,000 prostrations and then maybe you'll, you'll know. <laughs> They'll tell us what to do, how to reach that. But I just want you all to know that you don't have anything less than what we happen to have because we did have that experience, we did have that fortune. And that if this is something that you really long for, this meaning your own awakening, you will find it. When you set that intention, you will find it. And there are still amazing gurus in this world now, outer gurus. So I just wanted you to know that deeply, that it's there in you, and it's nothing less than what anybody else has. So... I want to talk about the 16th, but I also want to talk about a guru who's also alive now. Uh, I don't think I've told you about. I don't know if I've told you. Um, but anyway, and it's a, this is about family and how the guru moves within the family. Mm. So... But first, I'll, I'll talk about meeting the 16th Karmapa. I, I had come from Sami Ling in Scotland, which was a monastery where Trungpa Rinpoche was at, at that time. This was 1969. And I'd, li I'd lived in this monastery. It was the first Tibetan monastery in the West for six months. And I had received from Trungpa Rinpoche a sadhana, a practice that he had written in Bhutan, that he had received it in a vision in, in Bhutan. And a lot of it was about the karmapa, the invocation of the karmapa, a, a calling to the karmapa, a lot of the lines. And one of the lines was, 
The only offering I can make is to follow your example. The only offering I can make is to follow your example. And so the entire overland journey, I went overland in a, in a VW bus from um, London to Kathmandu. And um, took six weeks, two engines, um, being towed for 200 miles at night through the hills, the icy roads of Turkey. And we arrived in Kathmandu the late 1969. And there was uh, the Kamapa was there. And I was like, oh, this is, this is the one that I've been reading about in this sadhana for every day. And he's actually here. He's right here in Kathmandu. I hadn't gone there to see him. He just was there. And so everyone was going to see him. And so I thought, I'll go, I'll go. And then I was like, well, why should I go? I mean, everyone's going. I'll be different. I won't go. <laughs> I'm not going to go. And, and that went on for a while. He was there for quite a while, so maybe about two weeks I didn't go. And then everyone was saying, oh, he's just so amazing. You have to go. You have to go. So, so I was like, okay, I'll go. So I had long hair. I had my hair in braids like this. And I, at that time, I wove silk um, thread through my hair. I braided it in yellow and turquoise. And, uh, and I had this coat from Afghanistan, turquoise wood, kind of big cotton padded coat. And uh, I went up there one morning and it was packed. It was at Swambu Stupa. He was there and he was giving the black hat ceremony. So the, the black hat is a hat that is an imitation of a hat that he saw in a vision. And they say that the Dakinis, who are the female emanations of wisdom, wove him this hat that he'd seen in a vision with their hair. And because Dakinis fly, Tibetan word for them is Khandra or skygoer, they fly, that if he didn't keep his hand on the hat, it would fly away. And so if you ever see a photograph of the Karmapa doing the hat ceremony, he always has one hand that's holding it. And in the other hand, he has a crystal mala, and he's doing Omani Padme Hum mantra. And so the process of the ceremony is there's the horns, this amazing Tibetan oboes. They're called jaling. It's a very sort of eerie, evocative sound. They're played, then they bring out the hat box, present it, bring it up to where he is on his throne, and then they take off the lid. He puts his hand on the top, <laughs> it won't fly away. And then he takes it out, and he puts it on his head, and he has one hand up and the other hand is his mala. And then he does a mala of Omani Padme home, slowly, 
So it's a while. Meanwhile, the jawlings are still going. And everybody, you just look. That's all it is. You, there's nothing else. You just look at him with the hat on. And so I'm there looking at him with the hat on. And surrounded by Tibetans, like really surrounded. And Tibetans don't bathe a lot. And... um Usually, like once a year, traditionally, they bathed in Tibet because it was too cold. And so anyway, a lot of them had just come from Tibet. So there was a very strong smell of, of uh, rancid butter and bodies, Tibetan bodies. And so I was there kind of like, whoa. <laughs> like, okay, I think I can stay conscious because <laughs> I was kind of being squished by all these bodies and just looking. And then all of a sudden, instead of seeing him, I saw a Buddha. He actually transformed into a golden Buddha. And I've talked to many people since who have attended a black hat ceremony, and people have experiences like that. I mean, I never had an experience like that, but that happened. So people would date their lives before and after the black hat. It was that impactful in people's lives. And so after it was over, you get in this line, which you were in, only Tibetans are not polite. It wasn't like, were you in California? Yeah. It? Yeah, I was at that. Yeah, yeah. In that big, yeah. that kind of like a hangar down yeah. by the water. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so um, we're being squeezed in to this door at the side of the monastery, and I was like, well, either I'm going to get trampled to death or... I'll make it through this. But I really wasn't expecting anything more than to just maybe make it through. So then my moment comes where suddenly it's like, okay, my turn. And he has this stick with a, a blessing thing uh, hanging from it, like a kind of uh, a roll of prayers that's in it, like a prayer will that Nina has. And so he puts it on your head and he he did that, and I looked up at him, and then he just looked at me, and I looked at him, and it seemed like a really long time. Like he was really like looking at me like, who are you? I... And then it was over, and I left. And then he said something to the people next to him when I left. And then I started to go see him every day, <laughs> like everyone else was. And then I had something happen, which was that I felt like there was something I had to do, but I didn't know what it was. And I, I couldn't sleep. And so I'd be like up all night, walking around all day, like, what am I supposed to do? There's something I'm supposed to do. And then one morning I woke up and I went, Oh, the only offering you can make is to follow his example. That means he's a monk. I should be a nun. I should get ordained. That's what I'm supposed to do.
And so I took flowers from the garden in this house that I was staying in, and I went straight up. It was barely dawn. I went straight up. There were already people waiting outside his room to see him. And I, w- I was Western. You know, I didn't know the protocol, so I just walked in. And I just gave him my flowers and sat down. I should have done three prostrations, walked up, gotten a blessing, and then maybe sat down. But I didn't know. So I just gave him the flowers. He said, sit down. And then I said, I took my hair, you know, I went like this. I want to cut off my hair. That's in Tibetan. That's how you say ordination. You cut off your hair because you shave your head. So he looked at me again, like really long time, and then he said, "Yes, yes. Meet me. Meet me in Bodhgaya." He didn't want to do it there. He wanted to do it in Bodhgaya, and so. That happened. I was ordained by myself in January, full moon of January 1970, Bodhkaya. And when I came out of my ordination ceremony, the translator said to me, you know, that first day he saw you, he told us who you were from his previous life, that he knew you, and you would take ordination Mm. and become a nun under him, the first American to become a nun under him. There was already Mummy, you know know Mummy, Frida Beatty? She was already, but I was the first American. And so he knew the whole time what was going to happen, and I followed him through that whole life, and then also in his next life, the 17th Karmapa. So he lived in me as a presence. I didn't receive that much teaching from him because he didn't teach. He'd been very naughty as a child when they were trying to train him, and he wouldn't study. And so he ended up not knowing very much. <laughs> so he had to have other lamas, like, teach for him, like Kala Rinpoche. was like, he, okay, go to Kala Rinpoche, or go to Bokotoku, Trongo Rinpoche. So, but he lived in me in such an intense way so many dreams, and receiving teachings from him in dreams. So the guru's principle can live within you without the guru being physically present, which these two here are a living example of. Maharaj is still the main thing, the main, their main relationship, really. Um, right? It's your main relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, there's not time to tell more, but I I just want to briefly tell you about a living Lama 
and my family. So there's a, there's a Lama who was in Tibet, and a friend of mine met him in Tibet and told me about him. And as soon as she told me about him, it was like a, a bell went off. And she said, do you want to invite him to Taramandala? And I said, yes. His name is Adzam Pelo Rinpoche. And so at the time, my son was studying science. And he was on a PhD track. He was in his early 20s. Not really interested in spirituality, a little bit interested, but not very much. And Azar Rinpoche ended up coming to Taramandala, and it was another one of those things where he remembered me. Mm. And uh, he just recently told me who I was in his past lives, just in 2019. Because he kept hinting, and finally in 2019, I said, Rinpoche, I may never see you again in this life. Who was I? Who is this? <laughs> so he finally said, you were my mother. Wow. <laughs> so anyway, my son, I was in a year-long retreat, a year-long solitary retreat. But when you go into a long retreat like that, if you want to have people, certain people visit you, you put a symbol of them in your retreat on your shrine, and then they can come in because they're not breaking the barrier because they're already in there. So anyway, my son came to see me. And meanwhile, when Azam Rinpoche had been there the year before, he had imprinted his thumb into a stone in front of me. I had given him the stone. And he'd done it just after lunch one day, at the lunch table with all the dirty dishes still on the table. And it's a longer story, but just to be brief, David was there, my husband was there, and David was very suspicious about all the llamas who came. He would, like, check them out from a distance, you know, kind of ride the perimeters on his horse and, like, I don't know about this guy. So he'd been doing that with Azam Rinpoche. And, but he was there at that lunch. And, he, and Azam Rinpoche said to him, David, I'm going to help you in the bardo. The bardo's where you go after you die. And it was just totally out of the blue. It was like, why is he talking about the bardo at lunch? <laughs> and out of the blue. And Anne Klein and I were there, both there, to the, and we both remembered it because it was so out of the blue. So that was in maybe 2002. Um, my son came to visit me. I was in that retreat, 2001 to 2002. And I showed him the rock that Azam Rinpoche had put his thumb into. And he was a scientist, so he knew what it would take to move the molecules of rock to the point where it looked like butter. And he was like, I want to meet him. <laughs> And he had, he had done an ayahuasca ceremony 
in Italy with his father who studied shamanism. And he had remembered in that ceremony that he had chosen me as his mother because of the Dharma and that he was rebelling against me and not doing it and that he should stop doing that. And so he had actually come to see me in retreat to ask me to teach him. And I said, I, I'm your mother, I can't be your teacher, but there's somebody here that can. And that's when I showed him the, the stone, and then he said, I want to meet him. So he became, he's probably his most devoted student in the West. I mean, when you hear him talk about Azamirbache, it's, it's his whole life, mm. it's and And he wasn't like that at all. He was like my problem child. He had ADHD, you know, and they wanted me to put him on Ritalin, you know, he, his sisters and I would just be like, if he doesn't become a drug addict, anything else is fine. <laughs> just, we just, just hope he doesn't, that doesn't happen. Anyway, so he ended up um, going into four years of retreat, practicing 12 hours a day, waking up at 4.30 a.m., four three-hour sessions a day. But anyway... In 2010, David died suddenly. And he was in Tibet. My son was in Tibet at Asam Rinpoche's monastery. He'd been smuggled in. He dyed his hair black, and he was smuggled in to Asam Rinpoche's monastery. And so he, uh, Asam Rinpoche called him in the day that David died and said, you need to get ready to go. And he was like, why? He said, you you need to pack up. You need to get ready. Why? And he said, David, dutsu sarsum. That means David's time is up. And he was like, what do you mean? And he was like, his time is up. He was like, oh, he's going to die. I should go see him. And he was like, no, sarsum. It's over. It's finished. And then he was like, you mean he's dead? And Rinpoche said, yes. And there was no way, I mean, this is the middle of Tibet. There was no way for Rinpoche to know at that time. And so he went to his room. My son went to his room. And he said he felt bad that David died, but he felt worse that he didn't believe Azam Rinpoche he didn't believe his guru. But then he remembered a dream that he'd had the night before where David had appeared to him in his cabin and said, I came to thank you. And, and, and David and he had a close spiritual relationship. So anyway, David said, but the five lights, they're so bright. There's five lights are so bright. And then Kaz, my son, said, but it's just your own mind. And then David said, oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> I've got to go now. So he remembered that dream. Then he realized he is dead. And so he returned. And he got home all the way from the middle of Tibet to Colorado in 32 hours, somehow. So... 
there's more to that story, but my point is that this guru lives in our family now. There's a, is, he's a presence, like he's a presence in your family and in your family. And for all of you who are here, who have had this experience this weekend, these days that we've been together, your family will be impacted by your presence and by your experience here and by how Nimkaroli Baba or some other being lives within you. Your family will be changed by that. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. This this llama is in Tibet under house arrest. Oh. Can't get out. Hasn't been out since two thousand seven. Oh. But if he ever does come out, keep your ears mm. um, ready. Adzum, A D Z O M, Palo, P A Y L O. So maybe we'll take some questions in a minute, but just further thinking about uh, what we were given by Maharaji was really so profound. The first moment that I was there, he all he could say was one thing, sub-ek, it's all one. Christ, Hanuman, Krishna, Mohammed, Buddha, it's all one. So, but at some point, we had a more, shall we say, direct experience from him, which is a fun little story, which I thought we'd tell uh, before we went into a Q&A. It happened, Krishnadas and I will tell it together, hopefully. Krishnadas? have to remind me. Yes, I will. <laughs> Krishna Das had uh, a very bad knee in India. Oh, yeah. I had a lot knee. of pain. He threw a <clears throat> basketball injury, I believe. And Maharaji, we were in Vrindavan, and he told us, do not come. He would, you know, at times just say, don't come to the ashram. And Krishnas woke up in a lot of pain and he asked me, you mind helping me get over there because this is too much? I was going to go to the hospital in the local town. Yeah. So I wanted to see him first. So we went and uh, we arrived there. I'm kind of helping him, sat down. And one of the first things he said to me was, well, you are such a good friend. Isn't that great? Meanwhile... All I was thinking about, this was a damn good excuse to get into the ashram. I wasn't so much thinking about Krishna. What do you think? That was my, my knee was just an excuse to get into the ashram. Yeah, I know. It, was, it was perfect. And then, Krishna, why don't you describe what happened in that moment, what Maharaji did? There were a couple of interesting things. So the first thing was, uh, when I sat down, I couldn't bend my leg, so I had to put it straight out underneath his bed to tuck it. And he just, he didn't say anything. I mean, I'm limping in. I could hardly walk. He just sat there. He didn't say anything. So, and he didn't send us away either. So I thought, okay, they can cut my leg off right here. I'm staying. <laughs> so uh, he gets up 
And he takes the hand of uh, his Indian devotee, Gurudat Sharma, was there. And he starts walking towards the back of the temple. And the further away he got, he started leaning on, on, on Gurudat. And he like leaning and leaning, and it looked like he couldn't even walk. And he was like going like, and I thought, he's taking on the karma of my knee. Hmm. And that, at that very second, he turns around and he runs back <laughs> and he plops down on the bed and says, you thought I was in pain? You wanted to help me? And he pets me on the head. Good boy, good boy. And then, uh, <clears throat> and later on in the day, so I kept thinking, what is it? What is the karma of this knee? What are I, blah, blah, you know, all this kind of bullshit. So this, uh, some other devotees came in. Maharaji said, go out and get the mustache man medicine. Yeah, yeah. You have to go get, he needs the mustache man medicine. Nobody knows what's the mustache man's medicine. <clears throat> it was Dr. Sloan's liniment. It's a picture of a bottle with this guy with a big mustache. Oh, yeah. So he had it brought from the bazaar, and this guy was rubbing it in my knee. And inside the knee, I could feel things like... And I'm looking like that, and Maharaji looks, is it magic? <laughs> you bet. <laughs> so then, but I'm still kind of thinking about my knee. This is really far out, actually. <clears throat> Later on, some of the other devotees came, and he reaches down into the bag of uh, Girija, Dr. Larry's wife, Girija. Larry wasn't there yet. And he pulls out a Bible, because he was talking to us about Jesus all the time. So we thought, maybe we should figure out who this guy is and read about him. So we had, so he had a Bible. And now, Maharaji did not read English, he did not speak English, supposedly, right? He reaches down the Bible, opens it up, and says, read this. So I look at it, and it's from St. Paul's letters to the Corinthians, and it said, um, basically it said, in order to save me from pride, it was given to me a thorn in the side, and I asked, I beseeched the Lord three times to take it from me. And the Lord said, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. That's the way it's translated, you know. But the idea is that in our inability to do anything, even to help ourselves, God's, the Guru's strength is manifested by saving our asses over and over again. And then I was thinking about this before. So one time I was sitting with him and uh, he grabs my book where I... It was that time. Was that time? It was that morning when he took your book I and said, opened it up to Mahamudra. Yeah. He opened, I, it was a book where I wrote down all kinds of spiritual things, you know. So he opens it up and he just goes, what's this? And I looked at it. It's Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh, I'm screwed. I said, it's Buddhist. <laughs> oh, translate some for me. Well, I couldn't, but Gurudas Sharma said, translate it, started some of the verses. Maharaj goes, take, correct, very good. I went, what? And then he keeps going through the book. We had these postage stamps printed up. 
with his face on them. <laughs> like, you know, a hundred of these things, in a, uh, the, you know. He said, who's that? He points to his picture. He said, who's that? I said, Baba, it's you. Nay, Buddha. <laughs> so that was uh, a real moment. Yeah. Alongside of all the... Uh, courses that we all seem to go to, insight meditation courses, the teachers like Kalu Rinpoche and others that we were having teachings from. And so it's just fast forward to here we are right now with Lama, with Roshi Joan Halifax, with Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, uh, Joseph Goldstein. It's when I met Lama, we were, we were doing the uh, Mr. Goenka's courses in Bodhgaya in 1970. Yeah. Yeah, one half, ten days. You were wearing the red dress. Yeah, my red dress. <laughs> he looked really good in it, actually. Thanks. <laughs> it's too, it's bad like a long in, too bad you're time. a nun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I didn't last that long as a nun. <laughs> <laughs> I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> mm. Oh, boy. But uh, the beauty of uh, the, the mix of bhakti, devotion, and Buddhist discriminating wisdom since it seems to be uh, quite a great mix mm -hmm. and it's been happening here for many years and it's, it's a... I feel a fantastic offering for everybody, how we get together around it. And David? David. And David. Yeah, yeah of course, David. Yeah. Do we want to have a few minutes of questions, everybody? Maybe is Jackie's here? Okay. There you go. Go ahead. Yeah, second Hi, <laughs> I'm Jimmy. Um, and thinking about the guru, um, fierce grace keeps coming up in my mind and uh, my heart. Bef if I wouldn't have heard that over the last two years through Ramdas podcasts, uh, I'd be in a lot of trouble. I, because things started to make sense, but. Prior to that, as a child, I suffered a lot of um, childhood trauma, sexual abuse, uh, my mother's alcoholism, took away by the state, and um, which led me to 20 years of hardcore drug abuse, as bad as it can get, needles, overdoses, and um, I got some, you know, that was a lot of fierce grace, and I didn't know it then. Um, I found recovery, got clean, and things, you know, started clearing up, and a lot of healing through the recovery process, and... Uh, but I did ha I still have a lot of demons and a lot of things really rattling me around because now the drugs weren't covering it up. And, uh, you know, but I, I, was, I was healing. I was on a path to healing, and I was delving into some spirituality and uh, found Ramdas along the way. And, and um, my mother, who had lost us for a while, uh, she developed dementia. And uh, I became her full-time living caretaker, which, um, you know, is an interesting karmic. <laughs> uh, and um, it became very challenging about five years ago where I didn't connect it with her because it had been so gradual. 
and I started feeling, I'm living right and I'm feeling out of my mind, depressed, anxious, hiding, and um, listening to the Ram Dass podcast and, and um, you know, the, the grace of the guru, hearing that term, fierce grace. Mm. And it, it, we clicked because I was starting to get really concerned about really not wanting to be around anymore. The only thing that really was keeping me around or not getting high was my mom. And um, I, uh, it really pulled me through a lot and then continuing to listen and stay open hearted as best I could. It, you know, it just kept me around. And they're like the grace of the guru, like just hearing that thing, that, that coming in. And uh, sometimes I still feel lost. Um, I, I, the reason I spoke up because I've seen so much courage here. And uh, I thought I was going to show up to the retreat and be like, yeah, I'm going to jump right in there. I'm going to be dancing a curtain. And <laughs> that didn't happen right away. Um, I clammed up and, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just expressing myself because I've always held that back. I always put on a facade, all, you know, most of my life. And, uh, you know, it's starting to crack now and I can feel the grace. And I've had a lot of help along the way, but I'm just expressing myself. I want to put that out there. I, I don't know. I guess my question is, I'm so exhausted with the care for my mother that I'm grateful to do. I, I also want to like find a teacher, but I don't know if I should just rest in what I'm doing and be still and take it easy. Or should I continue to seek a teacher and, and, and you know, find out how to work with this further? Um, that's my question. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Thank you. Um, I would suggest you seek teacher and um, and take care of yourself as much as you can because you're taking care of her that's a lot especially with the emotional history that's in there with it all and and develop a practice a daily practice and have guidance and, and support on your spiritual path. I also wanted to speak a moment to fierce grace. Somebody earlier, I was sitting in uh, with um, David and Dr. Sarah, and um, a woman spoke about not wanting to forgive a certain person yet. Um, and another person talked about just love breakthroughs that she'd had. And I just wanted to say that there's a difference between fierceness and hatred. And you can say no with fierceness, or you can hold somebody accountable for what they did without hating them. And so I think it's really important to understand where you are in the process of forgiveness and not do it too fast. If you need to hold someone accountable, that's part of your healing. And don't just feel like, oh, I need to just love everybody. Not necessarily. You can say, that wasn't right, and it's not okay. And I think we, we need to understand that politically now as well, that... We can stand up for things we don't feel are right politically and be activists, but that doesn't mean we have to have hatred in our hearts. (laughs) 
Yeah, you know, like Sylvia, Sylvia says, uh, you can throw somebody out of your life, but you don't have to throw them out of your heart. <laughs> uh, the thing about Fierce Grace is interesting. You know, Ramdas, when he had the stroke, he believed that Maharaji had given him that stroke and that it was Fierce Grace and he had to work with it. But when he went to India, the only time after the stroke, immediately Siddhima, Siddhima was Maharaji's great disciple. Uh, she said to him, Ramdas, Maharaji didn't give you the stroke. He would never give you the stroke. The stroke is your karma. What Maharaji gives is the grace and the blessing to overcome the results of your karmas. Mm. And Ramdas absolutely, he used to say to me, the stroke saved my life. Mm. Because he had stuff in there that he wasn't getting to really. Mm -hmm. He just couldn't get in there. It was really deep. And the stroke cracked it open and he had to make himself humble and accept help. He couldn't do anything for himself. This was a guy who, you know, flew planes, played golf, drove sport cars, was a big, you know, yeah. now he couldn't do shit for himself. And so, but he overcame pride. He let go of his anger and he had anger. We, we were in India. <laughs> oh boy. One day, um, Maharaji had said, Ramdas, you're a saint. You shouldn't touch money. So he gave all his money to Raghu's brother to hold for him as bag man, right? And one day Ramdas wakes up and all the other Westerners had left for Kenchi and he has no money. He can't even <laughs> buy a ticket on the bus. So he was so pissed off. He had to walk over the mountains to Kenchi. It's like a four hour walk and there's tigers and you know, and all kinds of things, leopards. So he's fuming the whole way and he walks into the temple and he's like this. And the guy who he hated the most, we all hated each other, by the way. <laughs> Not quite true. Okay, a couple of us didn't hate, well, if we weren't hating each other, we were fucking each other. So <laughs> Excuse me. Jeez. Anyhow. <clears throat> Next. <laughs> so anyhow, Ramdas walks into the temple and the guy who he hated the most stands up and offers him a plate of food. Now we're being fed. Maharaji's watching us eat from across the courtyard. Ramdas takes the plate of food and he throws it in the guy's face. Oh. Maharaji said, Ramdas, something wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so Ramdas goes over and sits with Maharaji. Maharaji says, Ramdas, Love everyone and tell the truth. Ramdas says, the truth is, I don't love everyone. <laughs> Ramdas, love everyone and tell the truth. So he had to kind of get with the program. But the thing is, when we recognize the things that we've done to ourselves, what our own karmas have impelled us to do and our own upbringing, that's, and we see how helpless we are, then we look at other people, even people who have supposedly hurt us, and we see they are also pushed around by their own karmas. They have no vote, just like we don't have a vote. That's when we get some compassion. 
That's when compassion starts to show up. Mm. We see how hard it is to be a good human being. And here we are, all supposedly so holy and doing all this stuff. You know, and what about people who don't have a clue that there's anything to find, or any way to live in a good way? So, and another question. So speaking on the idea of missing the boat of the external guru, I'm recalling this story in Love Everyone, where this person is reading in this book that there's five perfect masters on the earth at all times. And then they look across the courtyard and see Maharaji, and he holds up five on his hand. I would like it if you could speak more on this beautiful concept. I'm comforted by the idea that there's five Maharajis on the earth at all times, and I'm wondering where they are. And <laughs> Brooklyn. <laughs> Brooklyn. Okay. Where's their website? Yeah. You know that story, right? Maharaji with five fingers. I never heard that. No. You mean the five limb yeah, yoga? Five, yeah. No, not five limb yoga. No, I don't know the no. story. I think that's what he's referring to. Yeah, I don't know. The mayor Baba said he had five perfect masters. They say that maybe there's five, maybe there's seven, maybe there's 108. Maybe everybody's a perfect master. Who knows? The point is that it's real and we can find it. I think, I think what I would say is that you don't have to start with a perfect master. You just need a teacher mm. who can help you get yeah. started. And then your practice will guide you. But if you're looking for the perfect master, you could be looking all your life and not take that first step onto mm. the path of actual practice because it's our own practice that really awakens that Buddha within. It's not somebody else that does that. And so you need to start. You need to have a daily practice and do retreats and just begin. And then it will evolve. And isn't it true that, I think it was Thich Nhat Hanh who said, the next Buddha is the Sangha. Sangha yeah. And that's what this is all about. Us here, right now, this moment. Okay, one more question, then we got to have lunch, I think. Huh? Hi, how are you? Um... My name's Lauren, and I grew up, I had a, a very abusive mother and a father who just pretended it didn't happen. And, uh, but I was able to, by the grace of God, move on, be very successful. As I'm a professor and writer, and then I had a deep spiritual experience. Ram Das was part of that. And I moved to Nepal, and I, I run, I rescued women and children who've been trafficked and enslaved, especially young girls, 
in um, the sex industry. Um, and just when you think you have it all together, uh, my mom died last year, uh, about a year and a half ago. And my sister is a very difficult narcissist, and she lives around the corner from my father, who's 91. And she's done everything she can to manipulate him so that I'm so devastated. I can't be able to spend time with him. Uh, you know, she took after my mother. And um, I'm, I'm just extremely devastated. And I've been doing a lot of research on narcissists. I don't know if anyone here has ever had to deal with a narcissist. But they're extremely difficult people. And... I guess more than anything, I would like a prayer from Maharaji if he's in the family to heal this dynamic and help me to find peace and strength so that I can love my father properly before he leaves this mortal coil. Because um, I'm devastated and I don't know if I've made sense and I can't give you all the details, but it, uh, it, it's, uh, I can't get to my dad. Um. Well, your expression of that in this moment is a prayer to that which is represented for us by Maharaji, Karmapa, whoever. And that's part of the process here. Mm -hmm. So just continue. Ramdas talks about how he used to communicate with Maharaji in, in, a, in a room in his mind he called imagination. And he got friends of his would put him down for talking to his dead guru. And <laughs> you know, he would say, yes, you're right. In my imagination, I'm speaking to him. And he would say, that becomes as real as me speaking to you right now. Yeah. I wanted to say I really admire you for having gone through what you went through and then going out and having a career of benefiting others and saving women from harm. It's amazing what, what you've been able to do considering what, you, what you, your childhood was like. And that strength and resilience that you've shown in your life is still with you. This is a difficult moment, but here you are. You're with us. You're on a path. And you, you brought yourself here in this really difficult moment. And you, you, got, you got some tools and some answers. And you stated your prayer to everyone. And so could we just have a moment of silence where we all pray for her mm. and, and the situation? And just send her and her family streams of 
love and healing. Break the wheel of abuse as you have done. May that happen, your whole family. Bring in the presence of Maharaji and Kurli Baba, all the great teachers of the world. Bless you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Yes. And thank you, Lama Tsultrum, so much for being here with us in this retreat after a long time ago that we first started talking about this. Yeah. I'm so glad you acquiesced to come. Yeah. So thank glad. you. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. And Krishna Das. Thank you for thank doing you. this. I, I think we should really thank Raghu because he's, he just, he, this is what he does all year is just keep this ball rolling and keep these teachings coming and create these gatherings and keep Maharaji's vision alive and the presence of that. In our world, it's needed. Thank you. <laughs> so at three o'clock, Nina is going to be doing chalisas. That's a wonderful hour to spend. And then at four with Krishna Das and others, Lama, you'll come to to our ceremony where we we were giving out malas. Uh, that is a very effective. Uh, way to work your way through and navigate each day, having that with you, being able to do mantra. So, and then in the evening, Krishna also will sing. So, thank you. <laughs>